The phrase victory disease was coined by Japanese historians. It refers to what happens when a nation allows a series of victories to lead them to complacency or arrogance. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has experienced massive victory. All the tribes of Israel came to him and finally recognized and embraced him as their king. For the first time in a very long time, not only did he know victory, but he knew peace. No war. No war externally, no war internally. Things were going good. But temptation always lurks around the corner of victory, doesn't it? It always does. Former boxing champion, many of you might remember him, marvelous Marvin Hagler, said it well. He said, it's tough to get out of bed to do road work at 5 a.m. when you've been sleeping in silk pajamas. After earning millions uh, from boxing, uh, it became very challenging to get up early and do the hard work that champions must do when you've earned millions and millions. It is in our nature to relax and leave the back door of our lives not only unlocked, but wide open after being benefactors of God's rich blessings. It's in our nature. On more than one occasion in my life, I have tasted bitter defeat shortly after a sweet victory. On more than one occasion in my life, I want to warn you about victory disease. And I want to talk to you about how to manage victory, beginning in verse 9 from 2 Samuel chapter 5. I feel like I'm very loud. I don't know. I mean, if it's, do I sound loud? Okay. Sorry. So, I was like, it could be me. Maybe I'm amped up a little bit. And so, okay. Verse 9. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built roundabout from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David an house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. So David took up residence in the stronghold of Zion that he had captured and fortified it. But in these verses, God's word is giving us critical insight and warnings on how to manage victory. We see it very clearly. The first thing I want you to see is this. If we are going to manage victory well, we must remember the who. We must remember the who. If you look at verse 10 and verse 12 again, it says that, and David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. 
Verse 12, the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. David went on and grew great because the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's why he was established as king over Israel and saw his kingdom exalted because of the Lord. David, in and of himself, was not the reason for those victories. It wasn't because of him. It wasn't because of how great he was. Please, one of the greatest challenges of managing victory is giving God all the credit for it. This is one of the greatest challenges in managing victory, is giving God all the credit. Lord, you did it. You provided. You are the reason. You are the source for victory, for success. We live in an age of it's all about you. Listen, I'm a sports guy. I've been a sports guy my whole life, and it's amazing. Like you watch a guy who maybe it's football, right? A guy catches a pass and runs 75 yards and takes it to the house and man he's beating his chest and doing every kind of dance he's been thinking of the whole week leading up to that to show how great he is but let me ask you if you took those five offensive linemen away if you took that quarterback away if you took that offensive coordinator who spent how many hours during the week game planning that catch that touchdown and that celebration is not possible, is it? It's just, it's just how we are in our culture today. It's all about me. Look at what I did. Listen, here's the truth. If Life Fellowship grew by 100 people a year from now, one of the things I would have to fight would be my flesh whispering to me, it's because of me. Look at what you've done. Look at how marvelous you are. It's just the flesh. But God wanted His people or God warned, sorry, his people about this very thing in the Old Testament. This very thing of of not trying to take credit for what he did. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses, and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, no brought, um, who brought thee uh, forth water out of, the, out, of, out of Flint, who fled thee in the wilderness, sorry, <laughs> who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. That's it. The temptation for us to claim credit for what God does 
and for what God has done is very real. Your flesh is all about that. That is also satanic. Although God had made Lucifer to be beautiful, his heart was lifted up because of it. He took credit for what God had done. Ezekiel 28, 17 shows you this. God created him. God made him the anointed chair. God did all that. But his heart was lifted up. It's because of me. Your flesh is so dark and so determined to steal glory from God that it says, you know what, if I can't take credit for my salvation, then what I will look to do is take credit for everything God does after it. So I'm, 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 somehow I'm, I'm going to get something out of this. Somehow I'm going to put my name on what God has done. This is our flesh. Now, before we you know, quickly dismiss this by saying, oh, not me, I would never do that. I would never uh, think like that. I would never compete with God for credit and glory. Uh, would you ponder this question very honestly? Are you a thankful person? Are you a thankful person? Deuteronomy, or sorry, Daniel 4. Pray for me. I am, my, my mind's not working well this morning. So hang, hang with me. I'll get there. I'm, I just can't. I am tripping over words and it's my flesh. It's just weak. I, I just, yeah, I'm a work in progress. Yeah. Poor Lori, right? This is her life every day. Yes, No, I think you're trying to say this. I think you meant that. Yes, you're right. Okay, Daniel 4:28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, "Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power?" and for the honor of my majesty. Historically, the city of Babylon was something to see. It was something to see. It was considered the most beautiful city in the ancient world and was recognized as one of the world's seven wonders. But after getting the revelation of the dream that he had, he had 12 months to repent. He had 12 months to repent. He knew what was coming. Based on what had been revealed to him by Daniel, he had 12 months to repent. Instead, at the end of that, he stuck his chest out and said, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at what I did. He glorified himself. No recognition of God blessing him to be able to build this magnificent city. Nothing like that. Look at me. I did this. Right? We see this all the time. Don't be like this whole thing, right? Me, 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 me. Brothers and sisters, everything in me, I feel like I say this weekly, and maybe I say it so often it feels that way, but But pride and haughtiness are terrible traits. They're terrible traits. Pride and haughtiness. 
Listen, humility is a wonderful, beautiful trait because humility gives great space for God to be glorified and magnified. Haughtiness and pride do not. They do not. And, and haughtiness and pride, what happens is, is it always places you in direct contention with God. It does. I mean, you are actually going to war with him when you're operating from a place of pride and haughtiness. But here's why I ask if you are a thankful person, because unthankful people seek to take credit for victory. They do. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't do this. I did. Not thankful for what God blessed me to be able to do. No, I did this. Now, here's why it is so critical to remember the who. Because if you and I are going to manage victory properly, listen, we also must remember the why. We must remember the why. Not just the who, but the why. Look at verse 12 again. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom, listen very carefully, for his people Israel's sake. That's why. For his people Israel's sake. Why did the Lord establish David king over Israel and exalt his kingdom? for Israel's sake, not for David's sake, for Israel's sake. This was not about David, ultimately. When people forget the who, they will certainly forget the why. So not only are they responsible for victory, but the victory in and of itself is also about them. It was all about them. It was all for them. Sam started walking us through the nine ministry operating principles of MBT. This is very critical. Uh, you, you don't want to miss any of this, right? I mean, we want to talk about who we are as a church, how we operate, what we value. You, you got to get this. There's, these principles are critical. Eventually, we're going to get to principle number seven, which says we are always training leaders. And this is a passion that Sam has modeled for us. Sam has a passion for leadership development. It's one of the reasons I'm here this morning, not that I'm anything or anywhere, but, but I would not be able to serve the Lord in this capacity without Sam's investment into my life over the years. Sam has a passion to see men and women grow and develop in the Lord, and it is something that I, I treasure uh, in my own life. I, I, not that I'm the best leader that you'll ever encounter, but but leadership development is something that I, I treasure very much. Uh, I would say that I've, I've had the pleasure, just John's one and a, and a number of guys, but I've had the pleasure of, was it six, seven years now? I, I lose count. Of, of working with John and uh, leading John. And, and I've watched the Lord develop John. It, it's, been, it's been sweet to see. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sweet dude. Um, he oversees our counseling ministry, as many of you are aware of that. Um, he's co-authored a counseling book that 
a well-known seminary uh, has essentially said that this is the book that they're going to have their students use as uh, a complement to that major. Uh, and so praise the Lord. And that's only going to grow. Um, but I, I do. I pay very close attention. I watch John. I, 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 I study him. I, I, I think I know him. I think I know his strengths. I know his weaknesses. And I've been behind the curtain with him on his life and in his life. Uh, but here's what I watch as closely as I watch what he does in ministry. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he's a gifted counselor. Um, that counseling book will, will touch the nations. I, I do believe that. But I watch how he deals with people. Um, it catches my ear when he takes ownership for his lack or failure as a husband and a father, when he owns that. He doesn't make excuses, doesn't blame Marcy, doesn't blame his kids. Hey, you know what, here's, uh, here's where I'm lacking. Here, here, here's where I, I need to do better. Um, when I'm in meetings with him, with Sam or his pastors, I, I pay very close attention to how he interacts with them. How does he talk to Sam? How does he address the rest of his pastors? What's that disposition like? I watch his heart attitude whenever we've had to have a constructive moment. How does he take that? How does he handle a constructive word? Does he, does he get defensive? Does he become combative? Does he try and justify things? Oh man, praise the Lord. John has only been gracious in those moments. I mean, I, I've told him this a number of times, bro, thank you for being so easy to lead. Thank you for allowing us to have a conversation like this. And at the end of it, we're better and closer. Praise the Lord. He's not imperfect, but my goodness, I know this. It's not about John Kendler. It's not about John Kendler. It's not. <laughs> He wants to please the Lord. You know, um, I've, I've said this to him. I said it to him in front of a, a pastor. Um, you know, we talk about the, the, the virtuous women, right? It says the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. In principle, my heart is safe with John. I, I, I know I can put my heart, and I have. I put my heart in John's hands. Because Sam would say he's not a me monster. Please, when people forget the who and the why, vain glory becomes their bottom line. That becomes their bottom line. Vain glory. That's the bottom line. When they forget the who and the why, it's about this guy right here or this person right here. Would you consider this with me, please? Jesus said that he had not found so great faith in Israel as the centurion in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus used the giving of a poor widow who gave two mites to the treasury to teach a critical lesson on giving. In the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, 
Verse 9 tells us that a lad had five barley loaves and two small fishes. Jesus used that to demonstrate one of the greatest miracles that you're going to read in Scripture. Only God knows the exact number of the billions of people who have been exposed to those stories. Believers and unbelievers alike. Here's my question. What were their names? What were their names? We will not know the answer to that question this side of eternity. Hear this, please. Ministry has become about us when being heard, known, and seen matters to us. It's not, listen, it's that we're not okay with God using us without people knowing who we are. So if I'm going to serve the Lord, I, 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 I want credit for it. I want recognition for it. I want praise for it. I, I want people to see me. I want people to know it, it, it was me. Yeah, Lord, ultimately, I know you get the glory, but, but, but you use me. Are you okay with not being recognized? Are you okay with no one knowing it was you? Are you okay being in the background? Are you okay with that? David becoming king was all about the people, not about him. And that's what leadership is all about. It's about people. It's not about you as the leader. Let me implore all of you to remember that wherever and however you're serving the Lord here. It's for MBT's sake, not yours. Wherever you're serving, God, this is for your glory. This is about your people. It doesn't matter if they know who I am. As a matter of fact, if I had it my way, they would never know it was me. So focus on serving this body, please hear me, faithfully, humbly, and quietly. Serve that way. Be faithful, be humble, and study to be quiet. No one has to hear me. No one has to see me. That's a recipe for bringing great glory to God in whatever capacity you're serving in. Now, starting in verse 13, we begin to encounter the next major focus on managing victory. And, and boy, if, you're not, if you haven't been listening intently, I, I'm going to really beg you to do so now. Uh, this, is, this is critical. Verse 13, And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David, and these be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. Now, some of these names are pointing to uh, what children that would be born in the future, but we're just getting that list here. 
Uh, verse 14 uh, tells us the usernames. Uh, so Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, Ibhar also, and Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, and Elishima, and Eliada, and Eliphalet. Now, does that not hit like a freight train? It should. It absolutely should. David has taken the stronghold of Zion and fortified it. God has established him king over all of Israel. God has exalted his king. I mean, God has blessed. He, has, he is victorious. I believe David ultimately erred on the why that we just talked about. And I'll justify that in just a moment. But this is where he also erred. Lock in. In managing victory, we must remember our weakness. We must remember our weakness. Although God had blessed David and given him great victory, listen, it did not erase the fact that he was a weak man. Victory does not cancel out weakness of the flesh. All those verses that we read two weeks ago about being more than conquerors, about being blessed with all spiritual blessings, uh, uh, all of that, about being complete in Christ and being made to sit together in heavenly places, all that is true. All of it is true, but it does not erase this fact. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That is the reality post-victory. You're weak. You're weak, and listen, your flesh, you can read the Bible 24-7, you can be in church seven days a week. Your flesh is never going to want to be on board with God's program for your life. Hear this. Our flesh only longs for what the Spirit of God is against. That's the battle, is it not? Your flesh longs for what the Spirit of God is against. However the Spirit of God is trying to lead you, however the Spirit of God is prompting you to obey the Word of God, your flesh says, I want nothing to do with that. And I will never want anything to do with it. I don't care what the Word of God says. I don't care, Holy Spirit, what you're trying to lead me to think, say, or do. I want no part of that. I mean, this is, if you haven't done the math on this, this is critical, guys, right? Because, listen, I'm 50 years old. I've lived over 10,000 days by the grace of God. Before and after my salvation, my flesh has not improved one iota. It will never be unselfish. It, it, it will never be humble. It, it, it will never be Christ-like. It, it, it wants nothing to do with that. 
It is the ultimate me monster. It's not that God hasn't given us the victory. He has and He does. The issue is that this flesh is irredeemable. This is why it has to be put off. This is why this corruption must put on incorruption. It's corrupt. This is why we must reckon that we are dead to sin indeed. You got to do the math on that. If you fail to do the hard math on the flesh, your walk is going to mirror the book of Judges. You're just going to be in and out of victory, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. In the Old Testament, polygamy was something that God essentially winked at. God's perfect will for marriage is seen in the first family in Genesis, one man and one woman. It was in Genesis 4:19 that Lamech took two wives. God didn't give him two wives. He took two wives. It wasn't God's will. Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 was clear. And David, no doubt about it, would have known this. As a king, he was not to multiply wives. He would have known that. But here's why I believe he lost sight on the why. On what this was all about. Why did God place him to become king over Israel? Of one word that we see in verse 13, look at it again. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. That word took is everything in this discussion. It's piercing. Because when we get to chapter 11, David is going to send messengers to take something that does not belong to him, another man's wife. This is big. But David was on top. He's on top. And he saw an opportunity to take something that would bring, that would bring gratification to his flesh, a woman. See, when we forget the why and our weakness in ministry, hear it clearly, our focus will always turn to what we can get out of ministry. What's in it for me? What can I take for myself? Because after all, this is about me, right? This is why God has me here. I mean, God, God needs me here. This is where pastors in particular have developed and do develop an attitude of entitlement. So they are entitled to have more than one woman. They are entitled to take additional cash from the church beyond the legal salary that they are provided with. 
I, I can take more because this is about me. See, when it becomes about you, you become a taker, not a giver. Every time. Churches and families have been wrecked. I mean wrecked because of pastors who saw an opportunity to take. And they did. If I can share a personal ministry principle with you that I've gleaned from the Word of God, let me share it. In Philippians 3.3, the Apostle Paul said that we are to have no confidence in the flesh. None. Here's the personal ministry principle for me. I'll share it with you. I cannot rely on myself. I do not rely on myself. I can't. I cannot trust myself. And listen, that's not me being self-degrading or that's not some type of uh, false humility. It's the truth. Because I read somewhere that, is there anything good that dwells in this? No. Man, this thing, I don't care what color it is, I don't care what gender it is, it is selfish, it is arrogant, it is prideful, it is egotistical, it is a mess. It's selfish. It's weak. I can't rely on Kenny Morgan. And you know what? Sometimes my flesh is like, actually, you can, bro. You got this. You can do this. You got the goods. You're able. I've crossed the Verrazano Bridge a few times in my life. It's a beautiful towering bridge. It connects the boroughs of Staten Island and Brooklyn. It's the tallest bridge in the state of New York. About 200,000 cars pass this bridge every day or cross this bridge every day. But if you were approaching the Verrazano and you were notified that engineers have inspected the Verrazano Bridge and they've determined that this bridge is not structurally sound anymore and it is in danger of collapse at any moment. Would you cross it? Of course not. (laughs) Why? Because you couldn't rely on it. You couldn't. If you relied on it, you'd be putting your life And listen, that is a high bridge. I got a good friend of mine. He was a photographer for Newsday. He's one of the major newspapers there for almost 30 years. He was on the very top of one of those massive pillars and took a picture. Like, I look at it. Remember, Dan? (laughs) I mean, just, I'm like, I can't even look at this without getting queasy, man. Like, it's a beautiful bridge on a sunny day. If you're driving on the Belt Parkway there, it's just, it's a beautiful bridge. But... But if it's not structurally sound, I'll take a tunnel, I'll do whatever I got to do to get around and, and cross that water, right? Your flesh is no different. You know it's weak. You know it's a mess. You know it's not sound. Why would you put confidence in it? 
Why would you trust? Why would you be so confident? Boy, this is one of the things that I just see. Man, we, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture that just tells us all the time that we can, that we're able, that we can do it. We've got the goods. We can make it happen. The Bible says, I read somewhere, our Savior said, without me, what can you do? Nothing. So why would I be so confident that I can do anything without him? The key to managing victory is to rely on the Spirit. That's the key. The Spirit-filled walk. Walking in the power of God's Spirit. That's where you put your reliance. That's what you rest and trust in. Finally, as we come down the home stretch here, 2 Samuel 5, 11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David and house. Look at verses 17 and 18. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephim. Look at verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephim. Now, this alliance that David made with Hiram If you keep reading and you get in the first Kings, this continued on and you see it show up with Solomon as well. The alliance seemed to be uh, political. It also seemed to be amicable, uh, friendly, uh, all good. But don't miss it. This was a worldly alliance. This was a worldly alliance. And the mentioning of Tyre ought to grab our attention because in Ezekiel 28, Uh, that prophecy shifts to the focus of the king of Tyrus, and it shifts from him to what was being said to him. It could not be attributed to a human being. Uh, That prophecy was targeted directly at the devil himself. Brothers and sisters, there is no way, please hear me, I beg you, There is no way to make an alliance with the world without it making an impression on you. You get in bed with the world, and I guarantee you, it's going to rub off on you. It's going to make an impression, no doubt about it. And when the Philistines heard what was happening in Jerusalem, they went on the attack. They were defeated, but came back for more, and they were defeated again. But listen, if we're going to manage victory well, we got to remember the world. we got to remember the world. The world can attack you politically. It can attack you passively. But it's coming. It can attack you aggressively. Listen, this is why some of you need to be very careful with this issue of politics. Because believers who aren't, believers who fail to remember the world, listen, become more political than biblical, and that's a problem. 
No, the word of God informs your politics. Your politics don't inform the word of God. Don't get that reversed. But the world can come at you aggressively like the Philistines did. Either way, the world poses a threat to your victory in Christ. Listen, you talk about this point landing home with me this week, my baby girl, she's in choir in her high school. And I, she had a concert this week, and, and I went, and I sat, and I watched, and uh, there were parts of it that were gut-wrenching. Gut-wrenching. On some levels, it was a celebration of debauchery. As I sat there, I, I, I had to look really hard. Is that a boy? Is that a girl? I, I really can't tell. Okay, that is a boy, but my goodness, he is clearly acting like a girl, and the place is just erupting in celebration. was gasping I didn't talk to her about it that night I prayed and I waited and we had a conversation the next day she explained to me yeah it's dad it's it's gone next level from a year ago it's in your face praise the Lord we had a good conversation we are in agreement. This is it. We'll not participate in that. We'll not show our support, our agreement on that. We will not make that kind of allowance. We cannot show any agreement with that. Brothers and sisters, David's heart was changing. The guy that we saw in those early chapters is changing now. And this issue of worldliness and remembering the world, it's going to show up in a big way when we get to chapter 6, which is where we're going next. And it's going to be very costly. Very, very costly. Would you consider 1 Corinthians 10, 21? And Paul said, "Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Paul was saying you can't have it both ways. You can't participate in pagan feast and the Lord's table. You can't do that. You can't have fellowship with the devil and his agenda and then try and get with God and his. You can't do that. Please hear me. I worked in the business world for years before I came on staff. I met some very sharp-minded people. I learned some things, things that I use to this day that are just sound, good principles. And I praise God for that. However, I'm going to leave you with this critical point. Because this is where, this is how I had to do it. 
I was in a number of situations, whether it be traveling for work or, or meetings after work or spending time with people in a lot of different settings. But here's where I double down. Listen, when dealing with the world, it must be on our terms. It's on my terms. There are places I will not go. There are conversations I will not have. There are words I will not use. It's going to be on my terms. And I'm okay with being the odd guy out being, I'm okay with the awkward moment where there's some filthy trifling thing that's being said or done and I'm the only one not laughing. I'm okay with that. It's on my terms. You gotta remember the world. They're coming for you. Whether it be politically, passively, or aggressively, they're coming for your victory. And back to Galatians 5.1, you've got to stand your ground. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. You don't give up that ground to the world, the flesh, or your devil. Lord, thank you uh, for your word today. Lord, may we hide it in our hearts so that we can manage the victory that we have in you. Amen.